This episode is sponsored by Crazy Is As Crazy Does, The Life of a Serial Killer by John H. Mudgett. If you're listening to this show, then it's a pretty good bet that you love a good crime story. And if that's the case, then Crazy Is As Crazy Does, The Life of a Serial Killer is the book for you. The story follows one killer over 75 years as he hones his murderous skills. Winner of the silver medal in the horror category in the 2021 ELIT Book Awards, this historical horror delivers thrills and chills all on a silver platter. And a severed head here and there for good measure. Suspense and severed heads. What more could we ask for? So check out Crazy Is As Crazy Does, The Life of a Serial Killer by John H. Mudgett. Ebook available on Amazon and paperback on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. Links are in the show notes. old-timey crimey i'm christy and i'm amber we are here this week bringing you the crimes of yesteryear and your and before times the before times (laughs) the before times yes we are here bringing you crimes from way back when and before we get started a couple of things first of all this is our last regular episode before Spooky Ween begins. Spooky. Now, if you're new to the show, which we have some new listeners. Hooray! Hi, new Hi. listeners. We love you already. We don't even know who you are. But we want to. <laughs> yes. And every year at Halloween, we turn it into Spooky Ween, which is the name for it in this household, thanks to my husband, who has an interesting way with words. and. It's all month we go spooky in some manner. So we have some really fun stuff on tap. It's going to get spooky and creepy in here. And we're just ready. We're just ready for fall. I've never been ready for fall like this before. It's new. It is new. I don't know that I'm ready per se, but I'm definitely happy that the seasons are changing, if that <laughs> makes any sense. Like, I don't really want it to get cold, but it's, it's been a hell of a year already. It really has. You are correct about that. And it's been a very hot summer, so I'm kind of just ready for it to cool down a little bit. So yeah, Spooky Ween is coming. Get ready for that. And we also are going to give a shout out to all of our patrons. Deanna Lancaster, Kat Gray, Jessica Machiarelli, Brandy Cole Edwards, Amanda Peters, Joel Weigel, Lynette Verb, and Vicki Newton. Hello, awesome patrons. Hello. And I just kind of want to give that general shout out just because I feel like I forgot a birthday somewhere. Happy birthday, maybe. Just know that I did try. I put it in my calendar and it was like their birthdays in two weeks so that we could record it in the next week. But I did not get the timing right on that. So if you had a birthday that we missed, we apologize. If you have a birthday that you'd like to announce on the show, send us a message and I will actually attempt to get that right this time. We'll try our best. Yes. I'll, I'll fix the system that did not work for me this time. And if you'd like to join those wonderful patrons, you can go over to patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. I blanked out for a minute, but then I, I got there. 
where you can have access for just $5 a month to five bonus episodes per month. That is four weekly episodes and then one extra extra, as we call it, where we bring in a third person and we all talk about a crime on a theme. This month's theme is going to be God Made Me Do It. Hooray. Hooray. So we're very excited about that. And that will be coming out at the end of the month for those of you patrons who are waiting for it. And also Amber told me an amazing locked room mystery on the weekly episode this week that was just absolutely amazing. And I'm still just, I'm going to, I'm going to be up all night wondering. You're never going to know. I'm never going to know. That's not going to stop me from being up all night and wondering. Yeah. Who's the killer? Who's the victim? (laughs) Right? What the heck happened? We have no answers. Zero. So, with that all said, let's talk about someone who might be a killer. Maybe. And we definitely know all the victims. Or probably. (laughs) At least least we have that. We know some to most of the victims. Yeah. Yeah. So we are talking this week about Clementine Barnabet. I just have to say I love her name. That's a, that's a wonderful name. My show notes this week are uh, entitled My Darling Clementine. Oh, that's better than mine, which was uh, just some more casual racism in the media. Oh, yeah, there was a lot. <laughs> there was a lot. So Clementine Barnabet was born around 1894 in St. Martinsville, Louisiana. Her parents were Nina Porter and Raymond Barnabet. Now, they weren't married. I just made the natural assumption it being the times that they were married, but she's later referred to as his girlfriend. Nina is Raymond's girlfriend, so. She had one brother, Zephyrin, and she also had two half-siblings from her father's side. One was grown and had a family by the time that Clementine reached her teens, and the other was a son who was in jail, possibly for homosexual activity. It's kind of that coded language that they use sometimes, especially back then. And so we don't know for sure, but that's a a possibility. He's in jail for having a green carnation. I guess it matters in context of the story that the family is black. But can you imagine being a black gay man during this time period? My God. There's just, there's so many threats from all sides. It's horrifying. Yeah, yeah, no, that was, that was a rough time, rough Rough, rough. And it's still not great, to it's, be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's still can, it still can get rough. But back then, it's, it would have felt like all of society hated everything that you were. So there was some abuse in the family from Raymond, the father, who was also an alcoholic. In 1909, the family picked up and moved to Lafayette, Louisiana. It wasn't a big, far move, only about 17 miles. And it wasn't a much bigger city, St. Martinville's population back then was around 2,300, and Lafayette's population was around 6,400. So a slightly bigger area, but still definitely in the small town genre we're talking here. She was about 15 at this time, and the book The Man from the Train, The Solving of a Century-Old Serial Killer Mystery, describes her. She had large doe eyes, a slender figure, and smooth skin. Clementine had what one could describe as a pixie face. They say she was cute. She was very cute. I should specify about the book because the way I referenced the authors later in my notes here is kind of not deceptive, but it's weird because it's a father-daughter duo, and they both have the same last name. 
So I refer to them as the Jameses, which usually is a, a husband and wife. So I just yes. wanted to specify that when I refer to the Jameses, I'm talking about the father and the daughter who wrote this book together, which is so cool. That is awesome. <laughs> Super cool. Now, the Southern Pacific Railroad Company had a line running from Louisiana to Texas. And in 1911, and then going into 1912, someone started committing a string of very similar murders all along that line. Now, the biggest similarity here was that there was an axe. Always an axe. Always an axe. And the other similarity is that the vast, vast majority were black families. Well, and I thought the interesting thing about the axe, though, is that it was never brought there. It was always found there. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, in theory, if you didn't own an axe, you would get passed over. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's something that actually was brought up in an episode of Lore about axe murders that I remember was the fact that it was such a useful murder weapon because every family had an axe. You know, you got to chop wood for fires. You got to do all this stuff with an axe. So it's just another household item. And so you didn't have to bring your murder weapon. The murder weapon was already supplied. And I remember hearing about that and looking at Jackson being like, can we get rid of all of our axes, please? And then yet I bought him a double-sided hatchet. So, you know, it's, uh, it's fine. Well, I guess that's fair. You needed it for fires, but really, how cold did it get? I guess cooking fires, though, too. That, too, yeah. Yeah, darn it. I'm sure there's many, many other uses we're not even thinking of as well. Like murdering. Well, we're thinking of that one. We're we're always thinking of that one. So, on January 28th, 1911, there was a murder in Crowley, Louisiana. That's about 30 miles from Lafayette, where the Barnabet family is living. This murder was in this paper that was not too far from Lafayette and not too far from Crowley where the murder happened. And it was published in a section called Louisiana State News on page 7 of 8 of the newspaper. I would like to tell you some of the articles that came prior to this that apparently were more important than an article entitled Whole Family Murdered. Social gaieties are in full swing. New insecticide law now in effect. A shoplifter's carry-all, which featured a woman in Boston who was arrested for shoplifting and was found to have a big canvas bag worn under her skirt, and five wagon loads of plunder were recovered from her house. Wow. Yeah, yeah, she she was busy. Well, it was her and her daughter. And then uh, one about um, a man, I believe was a police officer, who broke two ribs sneezing. All more important than an entire family slain. Oh, those were all on page two. Wow. The first entire page was ads. The front page was ads. They did not really know how to hook you in first before advertising to you. They were like, no, we're going to be honest about what our purpose is here. Yeah. Everything else is a secret until you buy it. Yes. So this murder that happened in Crowley here is from the single paragraph article. And by the way, I, I want to apologize for the language I have to use. Uh, I would replace it with another word, but I feel like in the past, it's been hard to be honest about how we were as a a society. I feel like part of being honest is using those words in historical references. I would never use this in my everyday life. Also, I feel like it's really important to note how many times they used it. 
in this single paragraph. So basically, old-timey newspapers are horribly, horribly racist. Oh my gosh, it was, it was appalling. So, Walter J. Byers, wife and child, all colored, were found murdered in their home in West Crowley Friday. They had been brained with an axe, and the murderer had gained entrance to the home through a rear window. The murder is supposed to have been committed Tuesday night, and the discovery of the crime was made on account of the odor from the corpses. There is no clue to the perpetrator. Byers and his wife were respectable colored persons, and both were officers of the local colored church. There was no evidence of a struggle, and the victims were probably killed in their sleep. The house was located in a thickly populated part of the colored corner. Four times. One paragraph. Four times. I mean, you're trying at this point to make sure you get that word in enough that you can emphasize that this is, is not important to the people. Hence page seven of eight. Exactly, yes. But Byers was known to be pretty well-liked by just about everybody and no known enemies, and, and there wasn't much more about that. So about a little less than one month later, on February 24th, the Andrus family in Lafayette that was Alexander and Mimi Andrus and their two children. Now, he was 35 and employed at the Southern Pacific Roundhouse. And their children were Joaquim, three years old, and Agnes, 11 months. Mimi's brother and mother found the bodies, and it was suspected that the murders were committed about 10 p.m. The bodies were found at 7 p.m. the next day. They were all dead by blows from an old blunt axe, while sleeping with no signs of a struggle. It's the really, the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest silver linings we can possibly find is that there was no sign of a struggle, so they at least didn't know. That's barely a silver really lining. I'm really not sure how much a 10-month-old could s- struggle. Yeah, but. but it's a very dark, dark gray lining, actually. And then from the newspapers... The head of each member of the family was crushed with terrible blows, their brains spattered over their room, and their bodies horribly tortured. So somebody went absolutely to town here. They were all found in the bed with the axe on the floor nearby, but they were in weird positions. They were posed. And this again from the local media. The man and woman were taken up by the murderer and placed on their knees beside the bed. The woman's arm over the man's shoulder, as if in the attitude of prayer. The baby was then placed beside the mother on the bed. So there's this weird posing of the victims going on here to make it look like they're praying. It's very strange. Very, very strange. Whenever posing comes into play in any sort of serial killer, because that's definitely a serial killer thing, it just creeps me out so much. It's playing with dead bodies. There's nothing fun about that. I'm just, I'm sorry. There's just nothing. Well, for them, though, it could be fun. Or they could be trying to send a message. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, posing can sometimes be done to send a message. You're right about that. Well, I mean, think about it. So the the first murders, they are active in the church. Yes. The whole family is active in the church. Second murders, we're going to pose them as if in prayer. Yeah, there's a connection there. Although active in the church, a lot less rare back then than it is now. But still, could be a factor, yeah. Yeah. Although, if you just rode the train in and killed these people that you'd never met. Maybe God told him to do it. Maybe. (laughs) Raymond Barnabet was arrested within two days of the discovery of the bodies, but he was released due to lack of evidence. 
So he was already considered a suspect. They just didn't have enough to do anything there. Two weeks later, the Rice Belt Journal noted that Chief Detective Peck had found a clue that might point to the murderer, but they weren't releasing that information. Quote, the authorities believe that several persons are implicated and that jealousy or revenge may have been the motive. The next one is in San Antonio, Texas on March 21st or 22nd. It's kind of hard to tell. Notice, it's always in the third, fourth week of the month, the 28th, the 24th, the 21st. But we're also seeing that timeline ramp up just a little bit. So there's just a little bit less time in between murders if this one is connected. Due to the distance, I have questions. Because San Antonio is about 300 miles from Lafayette. So this is the Cassaway family. It varied how he was referred to. He was either Alfred or Louis or Louis. He was 52. Elizabeth, 37, and their three children, Jose, six, Louise, three, and baby Alfred, or maybe Carlisle, five months. And another statement I want to make about this uncertainty of names and names appearing different in different accounts, like we have baby Alfred, or is it Carlisle? Was it Alfred Carlisle? What's happening here? Like Alfred and Louis is understandable because his name was Alfred Louis Cassaway. With the baby, you don't know. And this... This happened a lot, either spelling of names or people having multiple different names. And I really feel like it's a lack of care on the media's part simply because of who the victims were. Yeah. I've never, ever seen so many names be different depending on the source. I mean, you know what? A lot of my sources, though, were not even naming them. It was like along with their three children. Yes, I had to hunt for yeah. names in many cases. I had to go dig dig up the newspaper articles and see if they mentioned them there. And yeah, it was definitely, I felt the need to make sure I'd named as many victims as, as possible though, but sometimes I'm not even sure if I've got the right name. And yeah. none of them on Find a Grave. I found next to nothing on Find a Grave, which usually is a good source for finding, you know, at least you can find out birth dates, death dates get more specific there because you have maybe a picture of the gravestone or something. But I don't think most of these Poor victims even got gravestones. Probably not. He was a janitor, uh, Alfred was, at the Grant School, and had also worked previously as a porter and a hall messenger, and Elizabeth worked as a seamstress. Now, according to the 1910 census, they had been married for 20 years at that point, although the censuses also have Elizabeth being 35 in 1900 and 36 in 1910, and mm. his age was also fudged. There was an age difference. They were kind of trying to hide that by fudging their ages a little bit. He was very involved with local events. He organized the Juneteenth event in 1889 and frequently showed up in the paper in relation to various civic and political events. Although in Man from the Train, I think it was there that I saw him mention how the editor of the local paper had this theory that you know, it's a small town. People are more likely to buy the paper if you put their names in it. So that might be why we have him showing up more than most people that we talk about of any race. Seems like they don't show up until the crime is committed. Yeah. Generally one way or the other. But it could also be he's very involved in his community, both civically and politically. Yeah. But that is a good point. And in a small town, in most towns, people are more likely to buy the paper if they're in it, you know? Well, and if he's that involved too, though, he probably goes around and networks a lot, talks to a lot of different people. And so even if he's not the one buying the paper, everyone's like, 
I know him. I'll buy that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Elizabeth had come from an abusive marriage that ended in her husband abandoning her before she met Alfred. And she was the only murder in all of these where the victim was white. This was an interracial marriage. Wow. Yeah. It's quite a story. And we do know immediately that she's white because it's in the headline. A colored family of five murdered. Five bodies on floor in San Antonio with heads crushed. Wife was white. In the headline. Really? Mm-hmm. That was in the headline? Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. gosh. Yeah. It was called one of the most atrocious crimes ever committed in San Antonio. And the article talks about how Alfred and Elizabeth had eloped to Mexico. And that, quote, when they first returned to San Antonio, they were given considerable trouble, but for several years had been undisturbed. Also noted that Alfred was a hardworking man while also referring to him as a racial slur. He'd always had the respect of people in general, aside from the prejudice that would exist on account of having married a white woman. There had actually been a legal case that someone had ginned up in the aftermath of the marriage, but that was actually dropped. So they were pretty much left to themselves, and he continued doing his political work, and she worked as a seamstress, and they had their three kids. They had a nice little life together. Yeah, aside from all the the racism. but Aside from that, yes, yes. Now, it was his sister and brother-in-law who lived next door. They found the bodies because the principal of the school where Alfred worked called him to find out why Alfred hadn't shown up for work. They came over and check, and they found the whole family dead. Alfred was in one bed with daughter Louise at the foot of it. Elizabeth was in a bed with Josie laying at her feet and the baby in her arms. Not necessarily known if it was posing or if they were all sleeping in one bed, but it does seem like the bodies were moved. The bodies of the children. That feels like posing. Yeah, the bodies of the children were moved to be at their parents' feet. And the baby in the arms. Yes. Which, I mean, that could have been legitimate. Mm Mm-hmm. And the blunt end of the axe was used. So we're not splitting, we're blunt force traumaing, essentially. Why use the blunt side? You have more area to work with. You have to be more precise with the sharp side, I'm guessing. Yeah, probably less blood, too. And especially if you're doing any of this in the dark. So, yeah, I guess I guess that's why. And you're, you're more likely to do enough damage to kill with the blunt side than just have the potential of just wounding yeah. and then having to chop some more. So it's, it's one and done, essentially. So assuming that our killer is from Lafayette and they killed this family in San Antonio, you have to take the train back. So you don't want to get your whole self covered in blood, which would happen with the, the sharp side of the axe. Mm-hmm. So the blunt side, I, I would assume, is much less blood. I mean... But I don't know if we can assume that because we do have articles saying that brains and blood were spattered all over the room in, uh, in one true. case. It's, it's hard to say. The changing of clothes is something that we'll see later mm-hmm. that may have happened. So that might not have even been a concern. Robbery was not a motive as no items in the house had been taken. And the authorities said that the wounds precluded there being any possibility that it was a suicide pact. Because that was also a possibility brought up. But they were like, there's no way that they could have, anybody could have done this to themselves after having killed somebody else. There's just, it's not physically possible. This is the only case where that's brought up as a possibility, which is 
I feel is because of the interracial marriage aspect of it. Yeah, I, I don't even understand, like, yeah, I mean, it could have been a suicide pact. No, no, it couldn't have. Suicide pact is jumping off a bridge together. Guns. Yeah. Guns are faster and much less messy. Yeah, that is impossible. Yeah. Also, an interesting note was that Alfred had gone to the saloon and purchased a bucket of beer the night of the murder. He was not a drinker. So there was some speculation that they had a guest at the house who maybe had then drugged the beer for the murder. And then, you know, did the thing where they insist, oh, everybody's got to have a drink. I'm only in town once a year or whatever. Yeah. But I really struggle with that. His family, literally his brother and sister-in-law lived right next door. Neighbors can be all up in your business. Yeah. When your neighbors are family. They're definitely going to be all up in your business. They're going to know when you have a house guest too. And and nothing ever comes of that. And we never get any information that they had a house guest. I question that. You know, maybe they just had something to celebrate. You know, who knows? Once again, Axe found left at the scene. And uh, just below the articles about the murder, there's kind of an update. A two-sentence brief that says that police had arrested a suspect in the murder. They refused to say whether the man was black or white. And I'm just assuming that they assumed the gender. It's not like the police said it was a man. Yeah. But the article's like, they don't know whether the man is black or white, except in not nice terms. It's amazing that the update that someone was arrested, the most important question is race. Instead of who? Why? Exactly. Any of these really important questions, not that one. But sure. No, he has six fingers on his right hand. (laughs) Yeah. We're told the next day in a different paper that several of the detectives believe that the perpetrator was, quote, crazed by the problem of miscegenation. (sighs) And that the person arrested had threatened Mr. Cassaway five or six years prior. And they do confirm that the suspect that had been arrested was black. The paper also notes that the tracks in the mud around the house matched the length and width of the arrested man's shoes, which were covered in mud, much like the characteristic black mud found in that area. There were plans to analyze the mud from the shoes and compare it with that around the house. There was no mud in the house. So the theories are uh, either the murderer was already in the house when the rain started at 11 p.m. because it was dry prior to that. The rain started at 11, made everything muddy. Or... The James's book says the murderer likely crawled in a window, but you'd still leave tracks. If you came in after 11 p.m., you'd still leave tracks in the house. So my thought is, if they did climb in the window or any other method of entering the house, maybe took their shoes off before coming in. I mean, A, it could just be a habit. (laughs) You'd say, oh, I'm in a house. I'm taking my shoes off now. Or B, you'd make less noise. Yeah. If you're not walking around in shoes or heavy boots or something like that, on on wooden floors most likely. So now here's my question to you. Mm -hmm. Which is creepier? That somebody breaks into your house and then takes their shoes off? Or that somebody breaks into your house when you're not home and hides in waiting for you? I don't like that last one at all. 
Well, it was one of I hate them both. likely one of the two though. But I hate that one more. Well, it's like imagine he that this killer, I don't want to say he, but the killer is hiding in the closet as you're giving your kids a bath. Well, and that idea them to bed. I think it's supposed to line up. The idea that they were in their the house before 11 p.m. is supposed to line up with the idea of a house guest. So somebody invited into the home and not creeping in a closet or an attic. Oh, I hate those. I hate that. I hate all those stories. I know, but that I, I mean, I don't think that the house guest is, is very legitimate. Although I do get that he stopped and bought beer, but that doesn't mean anything. I stopped drinking beer years ago and switched to liquor because I need it. Um, <laughs> but I had, I actually, I had a beer last night. We were moving stuff and, and that's what we had is some cold beer. And I'm like, yeah, give me one of those. Man, it tasted good. I haven't had a beer in a long time. <laughs> and I was like, I don't even remember why I stopped drinking beer, but this is good stuff. <laughs> so like, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a thing. Maybe it was just kind of had a crap day at work and yeah. just wanted some beer on the way home. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't, I don't put a lot of faith in the house guest thing. I do think that taking off shoes or heavy boots that you've just trekked through mud in that not only are, is it going to make noise on the floor and possibly wake people up when that's the opposite of what you want because you want to surprise them, but also that mud might make that squelch kind of noise, you know. So what, what do you do? You take your shoes off, untie your boots and then climb in through the window and leave them sitting in the mud? Yeah. If you brought them through the window, you'd just be tracking mud in at least exactly. that one spot. Yeah. Leave the boots outside. Climb in the window. When you finish, you either climb out the window or you go, you know, leave, leave by a door, whatever way you Can't exit. leave by a door. You don't have any shoes. Okay. Well, then you climb back out the window. <laughs> <laughs> or we don't know for sure that they climbed in a window, I don't think, if I'm remembering correctly. So if they came in by a door, just go back out the door. You know, yeah. Leave your boots outside. Come in. Murder people. Leave. I don't know. How many, how many murder, how many murderers are like, yeah, I'm just going to walk through the front door. That's cool. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's true. Back doors are a possibility too. Less, less likely to be seen by neighbors, um, depending on the neighborhood. So yeah, there's, there's too many possibilities for us to be able to really settle on anything there. Yeah. But there's a, a lot to, a lot to speculate on. That's for damn sure. On the, on the note of the coming in through the window that the James book speculates on, they're also connecting this murder to the Velisca Axe murders, which that's episode 55, if you haven't listened to it. It blows my mind that you know what episode it is. I look it up and then I put it in the... Oh. <laughs> I don't have them memorized. I really thought you had it memorized and I'm like, you crazy bitch. Because sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I don't, like when, when I, we talk about a connected murder, sometimes I don't know the episode and I'm like, you can find it, just scroll. <laughs> but sometimes I'm, I have a little bit more energy and... I think, okay, I'll go look that up. It's no, I have, I have by no means have them all memorized. I really I can't remember okay. what we did last week, Amber. Okay, good. Because <laughs> I, I was like, how do you even know that? Like, there are some times that I start re researching something we already did, <laughs> and I have to read it for a minute to be like, oh no, we did this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you've done this, is over 130, and that's not even including the almost 100 tinies. That's a lot of crime. That's a lot of crime, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I do not. I, I, Thank I wish God. I was that okay. crazy bitch that had them all memorized. That would be hilarious, but also really weird. <laughs> I, I was leaning towards the really weird. I'm like, are you yeah. serious? How do you know that? Right. It is episode 55, the Velisca Axe Murders. I don't even know what day it is. <laughs> and that would actually occur in June of the following year. 
And an additional connection is that the victims here, their faces were covered and the windows were covered. And that same thing happened in the Velisca Axe murders. Ooh. So, yeah, the man from the train, essentially what they're doing is they're connecting a whole bunch of axe murders and tossing some out as well, but trying to connect them to the Velisca Axe murders. It's very, fa- very fascinating. It's a very interestingly written book. I have a, a couple quotes here that'll come up later that you'll get a, a feeling for the tone of the book. It's much more casual than you ex- expect, but it's more conversational and kind of makes it more accessible, I feel. So. Yeah. So the paper notes that the detectives didn't think they had the actual murderer in custody just yet. So there's some doubt there as to whether this man who's been arrested is actually the man. And he is released within a few days and never really named. Yep, because that was not important. Well, in this case, I'm fine with it. (laughs) But you know what, though? So they don't name a lot of people, especially if you're just taking them for questioning. Mm -hmm. Because... Think about it, even in today's standard, if you were arrested for suspicion of a crime and your name gets printed, you're screwed because everybody now knows your name and connects it with you did it, whether or not you did it. And that shows up in Google searches and it gets put all over social media. But that's uh, that's a reputation ruiner. Yeah. And back then, everybody reads the local paper. Yeah. Especially so in a small town. I actually, I respect the fact that they did not give a name. Yes. I appreciate that It in this would case. have actually ruined his life, probably. Yes. yes. This, this person would have had to move, like, a state away <laughs> to get away from this. The victims were given a quintuple funeral that required... Three hearses and three caskets, probably all they could afford. Alfred was in one. Elizabeth and baby Alfred or Carlisle were in the second. And then the other two children, Jose and Louise, were in the third. There is a $5 reward offered for information leading to an arrest. That would be about $15,000 today. Wow. Yes, that is a reward. And then the sheriff of Lafayette got in touch with San Antonio law enforcement and told them, hey, we've had some similar murders in our area. Families, they're all black. Axes used. There's just a lot of connections here. Told them about the Byers family murder, the Andrus murder, and another one that had happened in 1909. That was the year that the Barnabet family moved to town. It was Edna... Opelousas and her three children, again, Axe, of course, they lived in Rain, which was only 15 miles from Lafayette. It's actually on the way from Lafayette to Crowley, where the Byer family murders happened. So it's kind of all in like one stretch of road, essentially, or train tracks. Elizabeth and her children, who were between the ages of four and nine, were all murdered That was a case where I couldn't find the names of the children, no matter how hard I looked. The children were actually found alive, but then died under doctor's care. Whoa. And then this one also, there was a stabbing involved, as well as the blunt end of the axe. So introducing new murder weapons. I think that's a good reason to discount that from the, the general group of murders that we're talking about here. Yeah. Because... I mean, there's the possibility that somebody was trying things out and seeing what worked. And then they were like, well, stabbing is out. I didn't like that. The, the axe was better. 
either faster or more efficient or required less energy or whatever. But then more didn't enjoyable. kill the kids. But then, yeah, the, fa- the fact that they didn't actually manage to finish killing the children does kind of point to a beginner, as it were. So there is that on the, the other side. Try. Yeah, so there's that on the other side. There's, there's questions as to whether the fact that a, a different type of weapon being involved, does that indicate that this is a different murderer or that this is just someone who's trying things out? My feeling for it is just because the demographic fits. I think that that was the, the first try. And they got scared. Maybe they dropped the axe because their hands were sweaty because they were nervous. So they grabbed the knife instead just to be like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I think it was probably nerves. Think of one of your first job interviews, right? You're shaking. Your palms are sweaty. You don't know what you're doing. Maybe you say stupid things. It's like that, but with murder. (laughs) So they're like, I really want to kill whole families. This one didn't work out. This is my job interview for killing whole families. Didn't work out, but now I know what I need to work on. Make sure I wear my power suit. For the next two years, they work on their their axe swings, and they make sure that they are striking the the target, whatever they're using, pumpkins in the backyard, who knows. And, And they just get better at it. And so when they come back in 1911, they got that swing down. There was no more hesitation because we know what the game is now. And there's no need for the second weapon. So I think it was a bad job interview. I feel like the fact that they used the blunt side of the axe, still in this first case, this 1909 murder, because it, I think that discounts it from maybe being a first murder. Because that feels like maybe a lesson that you learn the hard way when you, you, you miss with the sharp end. And then it takes you a while to realize, oh, the blunt end is more effective, I can get more force, I have can hit a wider area, I can do more damage all at once. And so I feel like that's a point on the side of this being somebody with some experience. But we have points on the side of it being somebody with no experience too. So it could go, as always, it can go either way. Maybe it was two people. Maybe it was. Yeah, two different preferred weapons. So, well, it could be a murderer and an apprentice. And, and the murderer has the axe, and I was like, you want to hit with the blunt side because of X, Y, and Z. And the apprentice is like, can I stab him now? Yeah, exactly. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. I think that actually was brought up, I believe, in the James book as a possibility, because generally when there's two different weapons used, it tends to be two different killers. So. Yeah. In June of 1911, someone works to further the theory that someone had murdered the Cassaways due to their marriage. The sheriff receives an anonymous letter from someone claiming to be the killer and saying that as a white man, he had the right to kill that family. Also claimed that he had someone else write the letter for him, and that person was 300 miles away. I do have to say I misspoke earlier because I thought of this section. San Antonio de Lafayette is 412 miles. Gotcha. But the three, yeah, the 300 miles is how he, far he stated the letter writer was, and I put those two together because it's like, well, 300, 400, eh, you know, in that case. And then here is a quote from that letter. I am in the city of San Antonio now, so catch me if you can, and there will be trouble on your hands, because I am in a dangerous place, and I mean to kill the first one that tackles me about this matter. So you can all pop your whip and get busy. I am ready to die at any time, so look out. Pop your whip, Amber. I know you have one. I do, actually. That, that 
kind of sounded like hot, but not. I don't know. Pop your whip Pop and get busy. And get busy. Pop your whip and get busy. I mean, like, I'll do that part for sure. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Catch me if you can. It's like, come at me, bro. Come at me. It's, Bet you can't. It's very come at me, bro. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, I'm ready taunting. to die. Are you? Come at me. Yeah, he's taunting. He is. Yeah. Then, on August 8th, someone is arrested. This is William McWilliams. He is 68. He's a white man said to have been raised by a relative of Elizabeth's and was a foster child. So he's not a direct relative, just raised by a relative. McWilliams was induced to come to the courthouse under the pretense that he was to be a witness in a pending case. I'm really enjoying my news reading voice lately. After being closeted with the sheriff for three hours, his arrest was ordered. When informed he was charged with the murder of five persons, he did not ask their names, but asked that he be allowed to see a lawyer. I have a couple things about this. First of all, it's your civil right. It's a right in the law that you can ask for a lawyer at any time. Mm-hmm. I love that they're <laughs> like, why are you asking for an attorney? You must have done something wrong. He goes, I'm sitting here and y'all said I killed five people. I would like a lawyer, please. Exactly. (laughs) That, to me, seems like the logical move in that moment. That is a very smart move. And I just, I really have been very infuriated by society and some true crime media acting like it's a sign of guilt. It's been driving me absolutely crazy. No, that's your, you exercising your actual rights. Yeah, and, and maybe just trying to protect yourself from them smearing your name all over the newspaper. Exactly, yes. And then there's the fact that he didn't ask the names of the five persons. Okay, so if in Johnstown, today, five people were murdered. And this is a town that probably about the same size as, as San Antonio was back then. This is time-stamped, right? Just in case. <laughs> it I absolutely just want to make sure yes. I have an airtight alibi. 100% time-stamped, yes. You were here... And we were... Um, it was not me. Making quilts for orphans. But anyhow, so... And definitely not tar- talking about murder, because that looks suspicious as hell. <laughs> Please don't look at my search history, ever. All right, let's say that it happened. Five people were murdered. That's a big news event. Then, five months down the line, there haven't been any other quintuple murders. The police bring you in for questioning sneak you in under some pretense like they did in this case, and then they say, we're arresting you for the murders of five people. Do you go, who? Or do you think, oh, well, it was probably the only quintuple murder that has happened here recently. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. (laughs) Yeah. So that, to me, it feels like it's not as damning as the media here wants it to be. They want it to be damning, and he's just trying to stay out of jail for something he didn't do. And you can't say that he wouldn't have heard about it, because... He was said to be a relative of Elizabeth's. So, yeah. He probably knew about it. He probably probably went to the funeral. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they talked about it at Easter, you know? Like, this is going to be family news that gets passed around. He got the Christmas letter. They do. What was August? So, not yet, but it was in the writing. It was on the second draft. They search his home. They do find a letter that they say matches the anonymous letter in both the handwriting and the specific paper used. I question modern handwriting analysis a lot. I definitely question old-timey handwriting analysis. Yeah. 
Also, asking for a lawyer and come at me, bro, are two entirely different things. Yes, yes. He has a very different attitude than this letter writer did. The letter writer would have stolen the cop's gun and gone out in a blaze of glory. This guy is just like, nope, attorney, please, I'm not speaking to you anymore, thanks. Mm -hmm. Yes. Different attitude. He stoutly maintains his innocence. He does give the police some other names to look into, but when they do, they don't find anything. There is a habeas corpus hearing, and on the first day of that, he was said to be quite amused throughout, laughed a lot, and so did his wife, who was sitting next to him. They just were having a jolly good time. But on the second day, he mainly coughed a lot, which, you know, allergies, am I right? Well, in, in this day and age, I, I, I feel like allergies is probably not the go-to. But like COVID, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> they started it. It was, it was all William McWilliams, the unfortunately named man. Why did they do that to their child? I don't even understand. I don't even think that was his original name. Oh, um, God. Why would you change it to be that? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. There is testimony from a federal marshal that McWilliams told him he knew who murdered the Cassaway family, but he was not going to tell the sheriff, even though there was a $500 reward, because he didn't like him. He's like, I don't like that guy, so I'm not going to help him out at all, even if it'll give me the equivalent of $15,000 today. I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, spite can really carry you for quite a while. So I... Yeah, yeah. It can make everything else pale in comparison. Yeah. <laughs> Even like $15,000, you're you're thinking, well, you know, I could have $15,000 or I could continue hating this person and not helping them. I'm going for option B. Petty time. Petty time. He does not make the bond that is set at $5,000, which is $150,000 today, which it's five different murder charges, so they basically give him $1,000 per charge for his bond. So he is behind bars until the grand jury convenes in October. And then literally nothing. This has been all through the papers. They've been chronicling everything. And then the grand jury convenes. Silence. Nothing happens. He just falls off the map. He's never mentioned in the papers again or anywhere. So we have to assume there was no trial held. Maybe the grand jury couldn't find enough evidence. Or maybe the grand jury or, you know, some of the local authorities uh, knew what was happening back in Lafayette. Because they had arrested Raymond Barnabit again in July for the Andrus family murders. And he was jailed until October when he had an actual trial. Maybe they were thinking, well, they've got the guy there. It's probably not the guy here. That's all I can think of is the fact that these timelines match up so well. Because it seems like they pulled up enough evidence that a grand jury would be like, yeah, let's go ahead and indict. I don't know, though. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Do you want your brain to feel like it's summertime all the time? Do you want your brain to feel like it just went for a refreshing swim on a hot day? Why would a brain go for a swim? I'm doing a thing. Just roll with it. Fine, fine, fine. How about, do you want your brain to feel like it just took a sip of a freshly made margarita? Now you're getting it. Best Fiends is the best brain refresher. The puzzles are super fun and challenging, but in a good way that doesn't stress you out. And there are thousands of levels to play, so you won't run out of fun anytime soon. Speaking of which, 
Level check time. I am at level 2,601. Damn, that's a lot of levels. I am at level 4,730. I am never going to catch up to you. <laughs> You'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> so download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. This trial. Raymond Barnabat seemed to be of the impression that there wasn't much hope for him, despite the fact that he had three lawyers. Ah. That's something. He was muttering the words goodbye and the phrase mofutu. I, I really tried to find some pronunciation there, and it, I was not lucky. <laughs> but it means, uh, some sources have it as I am gone. Some translations that I found were ruined, damned, or fucked. There you go. So maybe he thought that he had no chance because of who was lined up to testify for the prosecution. And that was his family. Yeah. Yeah, both of his kids. And I actually have Nina not as his girlfriend, but as his estranged wife at this time. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Hmm. Anything's a possibility, you know, and those statuses can change daily in some in yeah. some relationships. It can be, well, she's my girlfriend tomorrow. She's my wife the next day. And she's my estranged wife two days after. And then she's my girlfriend again. I know some people who have gotten married twice. I'm like, okay, let's keep making the same bad decision over again. And then divorce twice, by the way. So, which is why I say Shocked. that. Shocked. Yeah, Shocked. I know, right? <laughs> it's the whole spoiled milk thing. You don't take bad milk out of your fridge and go, oh, maybe it'll be better tomorrow. And right? put it back in. It won't be better tomorrow. Like, don't do the same things twice. <laughs> I'm not saying that it can't work. But it definitely has less of a chance of working if it didn't work Not the first time. Not very likely if y'all couldn't figure it out the first time. Yeah. <laughs> People can change, but most of the time it's not for the better. So, yes, Clementine and Zephyrin both took the stand against their father, Raymond. Clementine's testimony was that he had come home late the night of the murder, was covered in blood. It was on his clothes, it was on his face, it was on his hands. And on his shirt, there were brains splattered on the fabric. Yum. Yeah, right? Clementine said he forced her to wash the bloody clothes after telling her that he just killed a family and then threatened to also kill his own family if they talked. Zephyrin then backed her up on the shirt and the confession. Oh, and he was a little less convincing or specific maybe than she was. Didn't seem like his heart was super in it. Then Nina, girlfriend slash estranged wife, whichever, took the stand and said, none of this is true. The prosecution did, however, get her to say that Raymond had recently threatened her life and in fact had tried to kill her in a jealous freakout with an ex. There you go. There you go. The defense brought in the neighbor who shared the house with the Barnabit family. It was split in two, duplex. And she also gave a big fat nah to Clementine's testimony in particular because Clementine said she was forced to wash the blood and brains off the shirt, but she would have had to take it to the neighbors to wash it. And the neighbors were like, I think I would have remembered that. You're right. <laughs> Oddly enough... That never happened. Also, the neighbor 
decide that they wanted to act as a character witness out of nowhere and said that Clementine and Zephyrin had bad reputations. The Jameses in their books say it was obvious that Clementine was lying. Quote, Clementine was just a terrible liar. Although, frankly, we kind of like her anyway. <laughs> Again, I enjoy the writing in that book. But the jury did not like Raymond. They found him guilty and said, off to the gallows with you. I couldn't find deliberation time. Frustrating. But again, we, we hit a, a peak or maybe a nadir when we had a case with zero deliberation time <laughs> recently. Yeah. So. Raymond was not a nice guy to start with, though, no. by, by any account. So Yeah, it's entirely possible that even if Clementine was lying, she may have been doing it so that... She could have her father not living in the home and abusing and, and getting drunk and, you know, hitting them or, or screaming or whatever he did. It could have just been her seeing an opportunity to be free of that abuse. Yeah, I love it because, like, my, my first page it describes him as a petty thief and sharecropper with a violent temper. He was unfaithful to his wife, abusive to his entire family. Oh, boy. So he's, he was not a great guy. He's not a prize. It sure doesn't excuse trying to get somebody hanged for murder. These are not two equal things. Well, I mean, if he did try but, to kill his wife, ex-wife yeah. with an axe, I mean, that's that's a pretty good reason to put him in jail. Yeah, it doesn't excuse it, but it makes it more understandable, is my feeling. Mm -hmm. I can look at it and I can say, it's still not right, but I get it. Yeah. You know, if you've been abused your whole life and the, this person who you consider a monster who has been just making your life miserable for years, you have a chance to see them gone forever, you might just take it. But we don't know for sure if that was her motivation or what happened there. And then in Man from the Train, they note, what happens in many of these cases is that in the absence of evidence, the crime is pinned on a person of low social standing who is known to be in the vicinity of the crime. And we've seen that lots, lots, and sometimes even in modern cases. So his attorneys are appealing. An appeal does go through. It's accepted. Because apparently he had gotten some strong wine from another inmate, drank the whole thing on an empty stomach the day of the trial, and so he'd been drunk. So <laughs> the legal system is thinking, okay, well... He didn't take the stand because he would have been too drunk or he was impaired at the, the moment that that choice was offered to him. So he is granted a new trial. So all that happened in October. Then, November 27th, another family was murdered. This is the Randall family. It was Norbert and Azima Randall. They had uh, four or five children together. It's kind of hard to tell. And supposedly... According to a, one paper, I only found this in one source, but Azima Randall had recently lost her sister, Mimi Anders, murdered with an axe in the Anders family murder. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I, I didn't have that. Like I said, one source, one source, and I think it was a, a newspaper old one, so I don't 100% trust it, but it was definitely kind of shocking to read that, that they might have been sisters, which, you know, obviously they wouldn't share the same last name if both of them were married. Yeah, that makes sense. 
because I actually had that they had three children and they had a nephew that was staying with them was one of my sources anyway. Yeah, it was kind of hard to count the children because they may have had three children and a nephew staying with them and that was the ones that were murdered. Yeah. But then they had one, possibly two children who were out of the home for the night who were staying over elsewhere. You had Norbert. He was a butler. He was only 24. Azima was 23. Their children that were in the home were Renee, who was six, Robert, five. Agnes was one year. And then the nephew, Albert, was eight. And then when they were found, it was two adults in one bed and four children in another. And it was one of their children, their probably eldest who was away that night, and when she came home in the morning, she found the bodies. Oh, goodness. It was really just a horrifying scene for any 10-year-old to walk in on, any human being, but much less a 10-year-old child. Okay, so that doesn't make sense, though. A 10-year-old child, unless some some of these ages are wrong, the mother was 23. Isn't that what you said? Yeah, I did. I didn't do that math, but it's entirely possible that the ages are incorrect, because we can't even trust the papers with names, much less ages. In fact, I actually have that Renee was five or six, and I just went with six because Robert was five, and it seemed the most likely. But some papers had them both being five, and I was like, are we not going to say whether they're twins or not? It just seems like something that's mentioned, you know? Yeah. The inconsistencies and the inaccuracies and the, the sheer paucity of information leaves me wondering, was she... Was she 13 when she got pregnant and had a baby? I mean, it's possible. Or was she maybe a half-sibling? Had Robert knocked somebody up at 14, and then she was brought into this family when he married? I mean, there's a million possibilities, and we don't know because the paper or the media doesn't bother to give us this information. They don't bother to find out the information. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. So she found the bodies. The killer had used the blunt side of the axe, had also used a gun this time, shot Norbert in the head. The paper described the family as fearfully mutilated. My thinking for the gun in this case is it's a backup in case somebody wakes up. Because a gun is faster and easier to get to and deploy than an axe. Yeah. So if somebody wakes up before you can actually get to them, you also can have that distance. That's my thinking. I don't know if I'm right or wrong. Or maybe there was a second person involved, like we said, with, with one of the other ones. And, and that's totally fair, but I also don't understand. Because, I mean, in, in theory, you'd want to kill the man first. Bigger, yes. stronger, take him out first. Mm-hmm. And then move on to everybody else. The target that's most likely to cause you problems. Yeah, that's the one you should kill first. We so- talked about that with... Uh, Again, I can't remember what we did last week. It'll take me a minute. Or longer. Okay. We got to take out the big guy first. So it doesn't yeah. make sense that they didn't take out Norbert, which is a terrible name. I'm sorry. I feel very sorry for Norbert that he was murdered. And it's just insult to injury, that literal injury, that his name was Norbert. Yeah. Maybe that was a better name back then. It could have been. But yeah. So like, I don't understand why they didn't go after him first. And then maybe they, they went for the wife first because she was closest to the window they came in. Maybe. And then Norbert woke up and they shot him just because it was quicker. I mean, it could have even been, it could have been logical, like you said. They were going for Norbert first, 
but he woke up maybe as they were coming in the window or as they were approaching the bed. They knocked something over, something happened. Norbert woke up and they shot him in order to keep that from being, you know, a, a an fight. issue. Yes, yeah. an issue. So now the big question is where was the person who's recently been on trial for an axe murder? Where was Raymond Barnabet? Still in jail. Yes, that's a good alibi. That is pretty airtight. That is rock solid as far as they come. Uh, he, his appeal had been successful, but he still didn't have the money for bond. So he was in jail awaiting his retrial. And Clementine was living a block away from where the murders happened. She actually saw their surviving Randall daughter, that 10-year-old, come home and find the bodies. Clementine was just hanging out on the porch, waiting and watching. Wow. Yeah. The police immediately zero in on Clementine. They search her room, and they find a quantity of bloody garments. Dress, apron, even underwear. And she says, well, yes, that is menstrual blood. A lot of it. That's one hell of a period. A quantity of a period. They proceed to arrest her. They also arrest Zephyrin and two other young black men who were with him because they were there hanging out while black, I guess. And the paper said that she would be given a third degree examination by a New Orleans detective. And third degree actually is like beating someone. So it's... I don't even want to know because, I mean, if she was claiming it was it was menstrual blood, they might have given her that kind of examination just to verify. Oh, gosh, that again? People got to stop getting all up in women's bodies. Yeah. We do get a little bit more about, about that blood in a minute. But first, she has a hearing. And it was, according to the papers, something. With screams of hysterical laughter, the girl rocked back and forth in the witness chair, her great eyes rolling into the back of her head, barely any of the people showing. She's either legitimately going through a mental health crisis, or she's putting on a show. We don't know. At first she claims innocence, but then pretty quickly she starts telling everybody, yeah, I did it, and I also killed the Andrews family, which my dad is still in jail for, by the way. And I killed the Opelousas in rain. She also starts to talk about how this whole thing is bigger than her. It's beyond just her. This is all the work of the Church of Sacrifice. And they would all get out free and clear because a voodoo doctor had given them what's called conjas, which is sort of like seems to be um, Creole for conjures, that would allow them to perform blood sacrifices safely. There was also one report that mentioned conjuring outfits that confer safety upon the wearer. So certain clothes you could wear to perform these blood sacrifices. She says this is all part of a church sect run by a man named King Harrison. He's a Pentecostal reverend associated with the Christ-sanctified Holy Church. He's also arrested. And the Church of Sacrifice was supposed to be kind of a subset cult of the Christ-sanctified Holy Church itself. He's brought in, he's questioned, he denies any connection, and he actually seems pretty messed up at this idea that his church might have done anything to do with this. Or inspire it. Yeah, anything related to it. He's like, I really, really hope that we had nothing to do with this. 
the authorities have to move Raymond to Crowley in the jail there to ensure that both Raymond and Clementine are safe and also prevent them from communicating with each other. They can't be in the same jail. And also, yeah, the protection is needed. Members of their community would gather at the jail every day and just silently stare at the section where they knew that Clementine was being held. Quote, they are very bitter against the woman, and it is firmly believed she would meet with short shrift if for any reason she was released. They would take care of her. I kind of like, in a creepy way, the idea of any sort of protest that's just silently staring, a whole large group of people silently staring at someone or someplace. It almost feels like it would have more effect than holding up signs and chanting. I agree. I think that's really, like, creepy. There's a sense of shunned and, and you are damned and yeah. all of this to that when a bunch of people just stare. At, it's giving me chills just thinking about it, but I, that is part of the reason why I think it would be very effective. Yeah, the silence speaks volumes. Yes, I think maybe we need to consider this for future protests. I'm down. Yes. They release Zephyrin. And the two men that were arrested with him, and they're really focusing on Clementine. And then this comes out. They had sent the clothes that they found in Clementine's house to New Orleans. A chemist there analyzed them, said they were covered in human blood and brains, and that the blood was not menstrual. In Man from the Train, they say, we'd like to know more about his 1912 methodology, but okay. Yeah. Now, there's conflicting sources here. They say that the blood and brains matched in some way that is not specified. That found on a pillowcase from the Andrews house. And others say that the pillowcase was from the Randall house. So we don't even know which murder is attached to this because of the inaccuracies in the press. And the matching itself is quite suspect. Blood typing was around, but still pretty much in its infancy. It was discovered really fascinatingly separately, but also nearly simultaneously by two German men. That's Carl Landsteiner and Paul Ullenhuth in 1900-1901-ish. Landsteiner didn't even get his Nobel for this until 30 years later. And Ullenhuth got a big fat nothing. He kind of got the shaft, really. So, yeah, the blood typing, I highly doubt they were using at this point. Even if they were, though, that's only blood typing. Yes, it's only blood typing. It's not DNA in any way. I mean, you still, yeah, I don't know. And there, there is the fact that menstrual blood is different from, it's not fresh blood. It's not the same blood that spurts when you, you know, bash yeah. somebody's head in. It's a different kind of blood. So I can see them maybe being able to tell the difference there, possibly. I feel like if there's brains mixed in with it, though, it makes it pretty apparent that it's not menstrual. That would definitely be a tell, for sure. Clementine is behind bars, so is her father, but the murders keep happening. January 19th, 1912, once again in Crowley, and this is the Warner family. Mother Marie, around 30, she's a single mother. She has three kids, Pearl, nine, Gary, seven, and Harriet, five. They were all brained with an axe. Again, the axe was found at the scene. The back door was found open, so it was thought that that was the point of entry and exit. 
Marie's mother found them. It's just my heart breaks at all these family members finding. I mean, it's bad enough that people are murdered, but then when family members find them, which I understand is is probably the more common. Yeah. Because you're more likely to notice that somebody is missing or something is going on or even just be popping by for a visit. I get it, but it just breaks my heart and also makes my anxiety spike, <laughs> like, real bad. The bodies were arranged in an orderly manner on the bed. So just kind of side by side by side by side. The cops are like, well, we've got Clementine in jail. We've got Raymond in jail. Clearly it's got to be this family because we've decided it is so. Also, Clementine keeps on talking about how she's been doing this, so. All right, Zephyrin, bring him in again. So they arrest him on January 20th, even though he has an alibi. They think that Clementine and or Raymond are directing him from the inside. And meanwhile, all this has been ramping up and ramping up. And then you have people arrested and you think, okay, it's going to stop. But it doesn't stop. And the whole community is just living on this precipice of terror. They are just spending all of their lives on the goddamn knife's edge. They're leaving lights on all night. There's entire households where all the adults will stay up all night. Even depopulating neighborhoods where a murder had happened at this point. Although the main reference to that is in relation to the Warner murder and just about that neighborhood. It was called, some places called it the Promised Land. It was actually a legal red light zone in Crowley. So you had a little red light district there. Although, I hate everything. I hate everything. The Crowley Signal, the local paper, called it... Coontown. Wow. I want to shoot the microphone just because the microphone heard that. I mean, you heard it too. I'm not going to shoot you, but. <laughs> I mean, at least get an axe and stay on theme. I literally have, uh, there's in the garage, it's right over there. Uh, I literally have in my notes, OMG, I don't even like typing that. <laughs> no. I mean, I hate typing that. I hate everything about it. But Marie was separated from her husband and living there. And note, that there's been two dozen murders committed, all in a stretch of towns, if you don't count the ones in Texas, about 70 miles long. If you look at it on a map, which I did, of course, because I'm me, it's a straight line, Amber. It is a straight line. From point A to point B to point C to point D is a straight line of murders. You know, just like a railroad, maybe? Yes, Yeah. exactly. So this is leaving people in absolute terror. And then, of course, there are people taking advantage of that to send out extortion letters or even... Of course. Of course. Start up little businesses trying to get the the legit, have a reason to be frightened people to pay up for protection that is not going to help them one bit. Or actually be real protection, I'm sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Zephyrin, Clementine, Raymond, all of them are in jail. On January 21st, when there is another murder. Now, this one's a little further away. 75 miles from Lafayette. It's in Lake Charles. It's the Broussard family. Again, blunt side of the axe. You have Felix and Mathilde Broussard and their three children, Margaret, Louis, and Albertine. They are eight, six, and three Felix had worked at the Sawmill and the Majestic Hotel as a fireman. I I think that was different 
<laughs> than the firemen that we know now. Yeah. I think it was, you know, shoveling coal and, and dealing with the, the fires that keep places and things warm, I think. And he was said to be very hardworking. But even when they said that from the papers, I kind of felt like it was condescending. <laughs> it still felt condescending. It was like, yeah, he probably wouldn't have said that to his face if he was alive. Uh, the, mm, the heads of Felix and Matilda were bashed so badly that they were actually hard to identify. Wow. And then there's some stuff in here that gets, it does have a ritualistic feel to it, I'll admit. The bed was soaked with blood, and a bucket next to the bed was half filled with blood that had run from the man. So if that, if that bucket was placed there intentionally, that feels like collecting blood for some purpose. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's very strange. And then in the next room, the children were in their, in a single bed, piled up, looked as though there was some struggle. And here we have the first message from the killer it was on the front door, written either in pencil or in blood, because those are so similar, it's really easy to make that mistake. Old timey media. So, when he maketh inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Pearl Ort. And there's also written, Human Five. Which, okay. The signature Pearl Ort was in a different handwriting than the, the main message, so it was uncertain whether that was part of it or if it had been there before. And also the handwriting on the signature was pretty good for having been written at night, so they thought maybe that wasn't connected and they were never able to make any connection. They immediately connected it to the Bible, Psalm 9, verse 12. But Man from the Train tells us that it could very well be from the book Uncle Tom's Cabin. The book misquotes the original Bible verse. The original is, When he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. So those, that three-word phrase omitted from both this quote written in blood or pencil and from Uncle Tom's Cabin. So just kind of a weird connection there. Yeah, I feel like that's more than Uncle Tom's cabin with the misquote, and they just thought that's what it was. Yeah, they probably read Uncle Tom's cabin, and they remembered the quote, and then that's where they got it from. Much like we, you know, get, get quotes from Michael Scott all over the place nowadays. Now, did you have anything about their hands being splayed apart with pieces of wood. Yeah, I was uncertain. I was. I never found any actual reports on this in the media, just that this seemed to be local speculation and some kind of feelings of this being superstitious in nature, the, the murder itself. Yeah, because I, I was just curious about that because I did see it in one source, and I didn't really understand what that meant. They splayed their hands apart with pieces of wood because it's almost like a... a crucifix kind of feel there's that there's also the when you splay the hands apart instead of so if you hold your hand up with your fingers all together uh -huh. all right and then splay it apart it definitely looks more like five when you splay it apart got it they seem your to, hands would pull in because of of the that also yes your your, your hands might kind of claw up so there's this idea that gets passed around through the press and through local talk 
especially with the human five being mentioned, that five was for some reason an important number in these murders. Because if you looked at a lot of the cases that happened, it was either families of five or it was a group of five people or six people maybe that would have been five if, say, the nephew hadn't spent the night. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. So, like, circumstances where it would have been five if not for one thing being different. A kid out of the house, somebody missing who was expected to be there, somebody there who wasn't. So, that very much becomes a a point. It could be one of those things that people fixate on when trying to find patterns. And we don't know for sure if the, the... And it was the children who had each, in this case, had pieces of... I saw paper or wood between their fingers, splaying out their their fingers. So we don't really know if that's actually a thing that happened or if it was just local gossip that got inflamed because of all the very justifiable fear that was spreading through town and through states, really. Then there are two other murders in Texas that could be related. February 19th, again, just note these are always towards the end of the month. Hattie Dove and her three children in Beaumont, Texas... Axe left at the scene. Actually, in this case, the axe was owned by a man who lived two blocks down. Somebody had swapped out his axe with another one so that he wouldn't notice it was missing. So they brought an axe, left it at his house, took his axe, did these murders, and somehow he was like, oh, that's my axe. Or maybe he's the murderer. (laughs) <laughs> in this case, it could at least. be. That sounds really weird. It's a strange thing. I mean, I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Then, one month later, March 27th, Lyle Finucane, Ellen Monroe, and her four children in Glidden, Texas. Again, there's an axe left there. They think they have tracks from the perpetrators, a man and a woman. And they got the the dogs, they brought out the bloodhounds, they followed the scent, they found the man and woman, Jim Fields and his wife, who of course has a wife, has no name, but in this case she's lucky for it. She doesn't need it. Yeah. Two miles from the scene, they said they had come in on the train the night before, tried to buy a train ticket, weren't able, they were too late to get the last train out, so they went back home and... They were actually brought to trial, but the jury deliberated for one hour and then found them not guilty. Huh. So nothing really came of that. Those are pretty far away, though, from Lafayette. Beaumont is 130 miles, and Glidden is nearly 300 miles. But if we're including San Antonio, 412 miles away, I guess we kind of have to include the other ones that are fewer miles away. Well, I mean, we have to take into consideration that if this is like a little cult, maybe they're spread out. That is also a possibility, yes. There are more arrests, speaking of the idea of it being a cult. In Lake Charles, Eliza Richards is arrested, and King Harrison, the supposed head of this cult, as well as J.W. Wilkins, are also arrested. And then in early April, Clementine confessed to 17, possibly 22, numbers differ. Sources very wildly... I haven't uh, sang that in a while. Yeah, I know. Every once in a while, i got to break out the classics. 17 to 22 murders. She said she had co-conspirators, but she would not name them. So people are still terrified that there are still axemen, as they called them, out there. 
She said that they got the kanjas, but they didn't plan on killing at first. They just got them and were like, well, they'll keep us safe. Quote, we had not yet decided on committing any murders, but it was while we were discussing our future plans that the question came up as to whether we could kill and be protected by the hoodoos. One of the gang was instructed to go to New Iberia and interview the hoodoo man, who said we were safe in any and all actions which we might do. Our lives would at all times be fully protected by the power of the hoodoos. She said that the group drew lots to determine who would do the killing, and she disguised herself as a man so as to be less conspicuous. Remember a little while ago, we talked about the changing of clothes? This is where it comes in. This is what she said. On entering the house, I struck the woman on the right temple and killed her instantly. One of the children was awakened by the noise, and before he could raise his head from the pillow, I struck him a blow somewhere near the left ear. Then I struck the other two. I left the man's clothes, which I wore in the house, and I left the house in woman's clothes. I do still have questions. Because then wouldn't they have found bloody men's clothes there and had a few questions? And thought, you know, wondered where, where these came from? Did the killer walk away naked? You know, because they assumed it was a man all along in, in many of these cases. So that I have some questions about. And uh, this pisses me off. She said that they killed the children to spare them the pain of being orphans. The pain of being brutally murdered is, I'm sure, far worse. I mean, being an orphan, yes, rough. But, uh, mm, mm. so they did the first murder. A little time passed, about a month. There were no real consequences, and then they decided that, okay, the, the kanjas, the hoodoos, whatever they're calling them, are working, and we can kill with impunity. And uh, so they do. And uh, she also confesses to groping the corpses after the murders. Which is really weird. Yeah. I mean, I don't like any of that, but then that goes from homicidal to creepy. And when you pile those two onto each other... I don't, I don't like it. However, there are tons of questions as to whether a single word she says can be believed. Remember, she also testified against her father, and then that testimony was contradicted, and she seems to like to lie, and she also contradicts herself constantly. She's constantly saying things that just completely contradict everything she said before. The number of victims we have no idea of because it changes every time she talks about it. But indictments are brought up for six murders, one for each member of the Randall family. And of course, with her saying she had conspirators, they're eyeing her father up and worried about releasing him in case he's one of them, because he's still supposed to go on retrial. They are rounding more people up, including her half-sister, another woman, and a man named Joseph Thibodeau, who she claimed sold them the conjas. Then on April 11th, there's another murder in San Antonio. My God. <laughs> Seriously. This spreads throughout the country. I mean, it had already been happening in other areas of the country, yeah. and then it happened here. And I can understand why, why the James's book connects a lot of these. I totally get it. But just this idea that there could be someone in your, your community just randomly going around and murdering entire families with axes... Breaking into houses, a lot of these people 
probably all of them could not afford anything that would provide them security. Yeah. If, if you're living hand to mouth, you can't afford extra locks. You know, you can't afford a dog that you then have to feed. You maybe can't afford a gun. And even then, if you get a gun and somebody sneaks into your house and brains you with an axe before you can wake up, what good was the gun? Yeah, I'm sure have a whole lot. Yeah, I'm sure especially in Texas, a lot of them already had guns. So, yeah, it's really frustrating and really upsetting to think about. So this is uh, William Burton in San Antonio, his wife, two children, and his brother-in-law, Leon Evers. And once again, we have not just axes, but also butcher knives. The children did just get the axe. So there's, again, very, very dark gray linings. Yeah, Yeah. dark, dark gray linings. Everyone arrested and said to be connected to Clementine and the murders is released by the end of April, except for Clementine. She's still going to trial. Well, because she keeps telling everybody she did it. Exactly. It's a very good reason to go to trial, yes. And at this point, they think that there may have been around 35 murders in this whole string. And like I said, her confessions were ever-changing, and she eventually confessed to all of them. But it started at 17. Then it went to 22. Then it went to 35. Her attorneys try for a religious insanity plea first. But I I can tell you the public's not buying it, and the press is not buying it. The press has some descriptions of her. They call her a moral pervert. And they print paragraphs like this. While the woman at times seems practically insane, she yet has a certain intelligence and cunning. Ever since her incarceration, she has successfully foiled the officers in their attempts to get at the true facts of the case. And when she deceives the officers by giving them some false clue, she smiles with devilish delight and chuckles over her victory. Doctors for the estate examine her. They find her sane. And she is brought to trial on one single charge for the murder of Mrs. Randall. She pleads not guilty and yet still insists that her attorneys show the jury her written confession. (laughs) Now, there's a reason for this. She's pleading not guilty, but she actually wants execution. She wants it because she thinks she's safe even there. Well, she's got her special charms. She's got her conjures, yes. But also, if they tried to execute her, a chariot of fire would come and rescue her. That's what she said. And she is found guilty, at which point she yelled, I am the axe woman of the sacrifice sect. I killed them all, men, women, and babies, and I hugged the dead babies to my breast. But I am not guilty of murder. You literally just said you killed. I mean, yeah. there's cognitive dissonance, and then there's that. That's like a next-level cognitive dissonance right there. I killed them all, but I'm not guilty of murder. But she's full-on admitting to some of these. She's, she's telling entire stories about how she shot Norbert and stuff like that. Like, yeah. Did, did you, do you have the quote from that? Oh, I don't. So, okay, this was the last murder which she had committed, right? It was on a Sunday night. We went out for a frolic, and we went to a meeting of the God-sacrificed church. After we left, we secured an axe and took with us a bundle with old clothes, which we carried with us. We met two of the night officers, and we, when we saw them coming, we hid the axe in the grass until the officers had passed us, and then we went back to get it. We went a little way up the street and saw someone coming. 
I laid the axe behind a tree, and when we saw who it was, it was King Harrison, the minister of the God Sacrifice Church. We told him that there had been two men fighting up the street, as the officers would see him around there and arrest him. He did as we told him, and he went around. This left us all alone in the street, so we crawled to the house and entered from behind and killed them. Once we had killed them, I took a pistol, which I had hidden under my dress, and shot at Norbert Randall, the man I had killed. I struck him somewhere in the breast or body. I got the pistol from my brother's house during the afternoon and returned it the same night, so as not to he seen with it, probably be seen with it, should the officers catch me. After this, we went uptown to talk the matter over. I returned home at about 2 o'clock in the morning and went to bed, where I stayed until I was awakened by the man I worked for the next morning at about 5. I worked around the house until I was arrested by Mr. Peck about 10 in the morning. This doesn't make any sense. Yeah. She's telling this whole story about how she did it and how she encountered people on the street when she was on the way to do it and had to hide the axe. And So Norbert wasn't hit with an axe. In her story, she killed him with an axe and then shot him for funsies. And shot him in a different place than the report said. Not that we can 100% rely on the newspaper reports, but the report said he was shot in the head. This makes me think that I know that she did crimes, but was she even at this one? I have a lot of questions as to whether she's one of those people who just confesses to crimes that she didn't commit. I feel like that's what's happening because yeah. these, these details are not accurate. Yeah. And honestly, somebody that was there would at least get right how somebody died. Also, the fact that they brought the axe. So they're not just taking people's axes that are already in their homes. They're bringing an axe for everyone. So you're buying a new axe every time and then leaving the murder weapon at the scene. I know fingerprinting wasn't super advanced back then, but it was a thing. So that's not too bright. Not that all murderers are bright. But there's also the fact that, no, the reason that the axe was used so much was because it was ubiquitous. Every home had an axe. Yeah. New axe with purchase of home. Practically an advertisement, I swear to God. So yeah, that's, there, there's a lot there that contradicts. And that kind of feels to me like one of the reasons that police hold back information from the media and from the public. So that when people come forward and they have all these details, the police can say, okay, well, a lot of that's not true. Yeah. Because this is information that we didn't tell the press specifically so we could disprove it when some person came forward and tried to confess Specifically for, you know, whether it be attention, whether it be a mental health issue, whatever. Yeah, because honestly, if somebody came at me with this confession, I would be sitting there being like, "That's, that's he wasn't killed with an axe. He wasn't shot in the chest. You weren't even there. Yeah, it's all very, it's all very weird. She is sentenced to life in prison, but she's not in there very long when they bring in some more Medical experts, this is one of the weirder things, one of the weirder endings I've seen to a crime story yeah. that we've done. It was a weird ending. Yeah, the doctors come in and they do this procedure on her. And I actually was able, in some of the sources, I just found light references to it, but I was actually able to find a newspaper article from 1913. So about a year after she was sent to prison, bloodlust. Cut out of Clementine Barnabet. Here we go. 
an operation of the most delicate sort performed by Dr. Sterling, physician of the penitentiary, assisted by Dr. Wyatt H. Ingram, has cured Clementine Barnabet of the desire to slay, and Friday, an official of the penitentiary, stated that the woman is now one of the mildest prisoners in the penitentiary. It goes on to say, The Barnabet woman offered one of the most perplexing problems with which the officials of the penitentiary have ever had to contend. She was sent to the prison for life from Lafayette, where she had coolly confessed to 25 murders, giving the details of the methods by which she had accomplished the crimes which had terrified the... Now, there it is. That's the one I hate the most. Old-timey N-word. I'm not saying it. I refuse. In Louisiana, Texas, and Alabama, until whole communities were frantic with fear. As is well remembered, the Barnabit woman's perversion caused her to seek the lives of young children. When she arrived, the Barnabit woman was kept in close confinement, and everyone in the penitentiary were so afraid of her that the authorities feared to allow her any liberty at all. Finally, Dr. Sterling and Ingram decided that there was a prospect for the woman's cure and asked permission to operate on her. I told them to go ahead, said Colonel Harrison Parker Friday morning, and they did. We have had the woman under observation ever since. She has lost all traces of her old desire to kill and sings cheerfully as she works in the fields. The cure is as complete as it is wonderful. What the hell did they do? Okay. So, according to one brief report, Clementine received a procedure that was said to have restored her to her normal condition. Now, the automatic is lobotomy, right? No, but, but it they wasn't were not, around. It wasn't around. They weren't performed until 10 years later. And so, actually, no, wait, because some of the original reports that I read, like the one uh, article about this that was in the homicide uh, research working groups annual symposium proceedings that had this report coming out in 1921 but that article is from 1913 so 20 years it wasn't until the 1930s so 20 years before the lobotomy and okay so there's trepanning all right that's cutting into the brain and and burring making burr holes and stuff there was some of that by like a Swiss psychiatrist in the 1880s, but people did not like it. He stopped. He, he tried that. He took it to a conference and everybody was like, Mm-mm, no, no, you got to wait 50 years. And then you can drive a, a, a van around into mental hospitals and do it there. Like, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah. And there were some what, what are called psychosurgeries, which are, you know, physical surgeries to try to alleviate psychiatric symptoms by Russian and Estonian docs in the early 20th century, but the results weren't good. I mean, what? What happened? The only other thing I can... I hate even saying this. I hate it. They said she was a moral pervert. And I don't... Not that I think this would actually solve anything, but they might have severe confirmation bias. So the only thing I can think of is female genital mutilation. But I still don't think that's it. I would think they would focus on the brain. Yeah, I think they probably took out a chunk of her brain. Yeah, I think that it was undocumented. And I did try. I looked up these doctors. They're Ingram and Sterling. And I was able to find quite a few references to Sterling, but mostly like he attended this conference and spoke, but not what he spoke about. One medical journal that he had contributed to, something about a cesarean section that he had performed. And mostly just, you know, he and, and his wife just had a lovely visit in Pine Bluff, Arkansas for two weeks and now oh, have returned. So if you wanted to rob their house, too late. 
I was not able to find anything. The other guy does not show up hardly at all. And then also, I really wanted to look at some Louisiana newspapers that weren't in, like, Chronicling America or newspapers.com. And there are a few free archives. None of them are working right now, probably because, you know, there are hurricanes. Uh. <laughs> and, like, I, just, I opened, like, five different windows. I was, like, bombarding this server. I was like, please open. I just want to search you. So I had no luck there. Nobody knows what was done, and I think that whatever they did was probably highly immoral, if not illegal. Yeah. And so they buried it. I really feel like if I really tried, maybe I could get to the bottom of it. There's some obscure paper that one of them wrote about it. You know they went looking for glory, whether it was immoral or not. I mean, look at what happened with lobotomies, which we will get to those one of these days. Yeah. I promise we will get to those on this show. But he, that man was able to go out and do lobotomies and be praised as a hero for shoving ice picks into people's eyeballs. Like, it is unsettling, and I hate it, especially putting things in eyes. So, so yeah, she was released after about 10 years. Good behavior. Whistling while she worked, apparently. And uh, then she just disappeared. There is nothing about Barnabas in the newspapers for decades that actually refers to her or her family. Clementine, Zephyrin, Raymond, just off the map completely. It's one of the most baffling things I've ever seen. But there's still so much mystery, though, here. Yes. Because she was in jail and there were still murders. Yes. And they're like, well, maybe she was communicating with them from the outside. And I'm thinking, but she's in jail. You have a lot of control over who she communicates yeah, with. Yeah, exactly. Like, you also can keep records of who she communicated with. And maybe if you think that she's controlling people on the outside, have a sign-in book. It's not that hard. Check for ID. Do something. <laughs> I know they probably didn't have driver's licenses and identification wasn't super specific, but it's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. Yeah. It's frustrating. Yeah, and I really, I don't think that she was the main killer. I think no. that she was, may, maybe did a copycat or maybe she was working with a group of people, but I definitely don't think she was the main killer. And they even tried to make it a point to prove that she wasn't the main killer by continuing to kill all the people. Yes, yes. I do agree that it's likely that she killed at least some people. Yeah, it's I feel, likely I feel that she possible. got at least one family. Yes. But I think that she was doing the, I think it was Henry Lee Lucas thing, where he went into the authorities. He, he starts realizing that... You know, hey, this this gets me out of the, the prison for a little while to go talk to the authorities. And he starts confessing to murders everywhere. Hundreds, I think. It's an unbelievable amount of murders. And they start, so they start trying to connect him to this murder and that murder. And it's all bullshit. It's all him bullshitting for the attention and to get out of jail for a little while and have a little novelty and talk to people and get some privileges. Because, you know, if you have information... They could lead to closed cases. Even if you're the one who committed the murder, you can trade that for a little bonus here and there. Yeah, give me a pack of smokes. I'll tell you where that body is. Exactly. I haven't had a beer in a real long time, so uh, maybe in exchange for a beer, I'll tell you all about this woman I murdered. Yes, so, I mean, it, it could very well be not necessarily her going for privileges, because she doesn't seem to be trying that, but her seeing this as glory in some weird way. 
I don't know. I think she was definitely mentally ill. I do believe the mental illness played a huge part in this, and there could very well be some of the religious mania in there with some of the things she says, and maybe she even either imagines that she killed all of these people or thinks that if she takes credit for it, then then she can go to glory or whatever. I don't know. Well, I don't <laughs> I'm not to... too religious, so I don't know exactly how that would factor in. I'm very concerned about this procedure, but I think it was actually spurred on. So did you have about her little escape? Oh, yes, the escape. Sorry, there was a lot. I was, I was focused a lot on the procedure. I neglected the escape because it was so quick. It was so it, quick. it was literally the same day that she got caught. But I think that that's actually what triggered whatever procedure it was that they decided to do. Because it was the same year. It was 1913? She attempted the escape on July 31st of 1913. And she was actually caught the same day. Yeah, the uh, the surgery or whatever was performed in August of 1913. So there you go. That might be it. So I, I think, so she's sentenced to life at age 19. She tries to escape, and then the next month, they're like, she needs her brain fixed. We got that. Yeah, let me get my ice pick and my drill. I'm on but this. I think that was the catalyst for whatever procedure they experimented doing. Because she was like, you know what, I'm going to try to get out of here. And then they're like, no, 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 you'll never leave. I half wonder if whatever they did, because it's so vague, and then nothing is ever said of her again. Yes. I wonder if they left her catatonic. I honestly, I have very big doubts about whether she left in any state to, to communicate or care for herself. Yeah, because it was never mentioned again. And there would have at least been a mention of getting married or having children or something, you would think. You would think, yeah. I mean, you can just as easily walk out and then change your name, too. But I really think that the state of uh, psychiatry, the state of psychosurgery at the time, all of that does not lend itself. scary. Yeah, it doesn't lend itself to a strong chance of her walking out of there. Hell, and even just the state of regular surgery at this time was yeah, that's, pretty frightening. That's very true. Yeah, it's all frightening. And so, honestly, I, I very sadly think that she, it was not as rosy a picture as they painted. And uh, I think that there was probably a cover-up that nobody really dug into because nobody cared. Exactly. So, that is a sad note to end on. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's the way the story works. It, you You didn't perform these axe murders that we know of. <laughs> you know, I would have been a little young. So so where were you on January 28, 1911, Amber? I did not exist. That is, that's a pretty good alibi as far as they go. Yeah. So. All right. Well, there is always our Patreon where you can find more stories, some that end on a good note, some that end on a sad note like this one, but it's a nice variety. We try to keep it hopping for you. Or if you just want to say hi, you can do those things, too, over on our social media. We are old-timey-crimey on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I put up media related to the shows every week. This week, less media than usual. So I might put up a few newspaper articles, including that shoplifter's carry-all. I made sure to save that. So (laughs) I will post some of the weird things either related to the case very tangentially in that they were in the same newspaper as the articles about this case or even just some weird shit that I found at some point just to keep you guys entertained and give you a little something to uh, you know like read or look at 
If you look in the show notes, you can find links to, of course, the Patreon that I mentioned, but also our Amazon wish list. We have a large selection of books on there. And if you go through those books and find one that you want us to read and then do a case on, which we won't just read the book, we also delve into other sources as well. Buy us books. Buy us books. And we will do a case just for you and give you a shout out. And there's also our Redbubble linked down there. And you can go there and you can find a show merch. So, you know, t-shirts, coffee mugs, etc. And also stay tuned for October because during Spooky Ween, we're going to be running a very special contest. And you can take part and potentially win some merch. So keep an eye out on the social media and also make sure you keep listening so you can hear all about that. You can win some old-timey, grimy merchandise. And as usual, if I have any more bullshit, I can't remember. So, Amber, what are you doing this week? Uh, currently, I'm trying to go down a rabbit hole to see if I can find Clementine's brother anywhere for an update. I but, looked up just the word Barnabet on all the newspaper archives except for the Louisiana ones, yeah. and I found nothing. So it was very upsetting and I'm not having any luck at all. But uh, So I am moving a lot, and mostly that, working and moving and, and doing all that fun stuff. How it about is, you? Uh, I'm actually going almost definitely to D.C. on uh, uh, midweek. Jackson has a business trip. And we've been talking about this since, like, last winter when we were feeling really pent up and wanting to leave. And the very idea of going to D.C., like, made me nearly cry. <laughs> and so we're going. And I don't know. I mean, we got a hotel that's kind of near, like, the shopping and eating area. So I might even just, like, go out, find a cafe, maybe find some tables, just sit there and do some, like, research and drink some coffee. Or even just cross-stitch and yeah. listen to True Crime Podcast. You know, things I like to do. I like D.C. a lot. Yes, yes. Uh, we might hit up a museum, but probably not because he's going to be at work uh, during the days. So we won't really be able to during their operating times. Because I do miss museums. I love museums so much. And so, yeah, it's been forever since I've been to a museum. Actually, since the last time we were in D.C. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, I, I miss that. But uh, it'll be nice to just go, you know, out of town, a little shopping, a little, you know, just doing something a little different out of the ordinary. The reason I say maybe is because poor Hemingway was sick last week. He was vomiting just constantly, the poor baby. And I took him to the vet. We think he's okay now. He went like three days without getting sick, two days-ish. And then he threw up a little bit today. But I'm kind of fingers crossed. But if if he's sick, I can't leave. Yeah. Because, I, you know, I need to be taking him to the vet or taking him, calling the emergency vet, watching his symptoms, all that. We do have my, my brother stays here and he's the duck sitter, you know, and he takes care of Hemingway while we're gone, but I can't leave that on his shoulders. And also it sucks having to clean up cat vomit all yeah. the time. It's not, not a fun time. And I would not want to subject him to that. So if Hemingway is still ill, I will be staying here because I think when you make a commitment to an animal <laughs> to take care of it, that doesn't mean... You know, asterisk, asterisk, why is that word so hard to say? Unless I'm out of town. You sure. know, if you have a sick cat, I, I feel like unless you have no choice, somebody's got to stay with it. So, so yeah, fingers crossed that Hemingway's okay, both for his sake and for mine. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, that is what I'm doing this week in addition to the usual old-timey, crimey stuff. 
And yeah, uh, some writing. I owe Chris Garcia an article for one of the scenes. For your contract, right? For my contract, yes. The contract that I have yet to see and don't remember signing. I don't know how he managed to drug me all the way from California, but he's uh, he's a magical man, so... He is a magical man. That is fact. <laughs> yes, he is. He will be showing up during one of our Spooky Ween episodes. I can't wait. With an incredible story I can't wait to hear. So that is everything we have for you this week. Uh, thank you for listening to our not as filthy, unfortunately sometimes old-timey media racist and uh, sad words. <laughs> we yes. appreciate it greatly. And hello again to all you new listeners. Thank you so much. Uh, enjoy the back catalog. It's some good times back there. And we'll see you next week in Spooky Week. Bye. Bye. My sources this week are Vance McLaughlin, Homicide Research Working Group's Annual Symposium Proceedings, Find the Grave, Charles Swenson on Camptown Cemetery, the book The Man from the Train, The Solving of a Century-Old Serial Killer Mystery by Bill James and Rachel McCarthy James, Stephanie Weber on Mental Floss, a couple articles on Wikipedia, and some newspapers via newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia, and the Library of Congress. My sources this week are mentalfloss.com by Stephanie Weber, acadianhistorical.org by Nina M. Hofper, grunge.com by Karen Corday. No, now we're just not going to be able to publish it because five people are going to mysteriously be murdered in Johnstown. God damn it. If I see that headline in the news tomorrow, I'm just going to be calling up and be like, all right, so uh, what do we do now? <laughs> take that whole part out in the middle and just re-record it. Yeah, All basically. these dead people in town. <laughs> yeah.